From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Kuntz. Hi, everybody. It's Connie Kuntz, and you're listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's still February, it's still season one, but it's episode seven. And Sharon Nesbitt Davis is with us once again at the Shumway Studio. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Connie. Ms. Nesbitt Davis is going to read from Intended, her memoir in progress, which is about her journey into her interracial marriage of 41 years to George Davis. This week, she's going to take us to a different point in her life. Sharon, can you speak to that right now, please? Sure. This is 1963. It is uh, the summer, and it is the time that uh, the March on Washington happened. So I'm in my living room, and I'm seeing this on television. And then there's more stories um, following that, and it's those all happened in 1963 when I was in sixth grade. Okay. With no further ado, let's listen to Sharon read from her novel in progress. Again, we're in Quincy, Illinois. The year is 1963. My mother is mad because all her soap operas are canceled. Why does every TV station cover this? The crowd is enormous. Most are colored, but there are white people too. There is a bus that took people from here. Roxanne's father and Vicky's uncle are there. Mother washes clothes, irons, pays bills, and yells to me from the kitchen. If you're going to watch this, dust the living room. I dust the mantle, the television cabinet, three sets of Venetian blinds, two lamps, my father's chemistry books, my mother's murder mysteries, and my grandmother's Bible. I am done when Dr. King steps up to the microphone. I like his voice. If he was my minister, I'd go to church every Sunday. He talks, and my heart hurts. My father watches the news that night, and I tell him I saw the whole thing. My father says he understands the Negro position, but you can't force people to change. Dr. King wants too much too soon. He's going to get more people killed. My father is smart. He is the smartest man I know, but he is wrong about this, and I tell him what I heard today. It's been a hundred years, Daddy, one hundred years. In terms of history, it's a short time. But what if we were Negroes? How long would you want us to wait? My father doesn't answer. He goes back to reading his newspaper. School starts the day after Labor Day. Vicki is in my class, and during recess, we make plans to join the Freedom Riders next summer. We have a year to convince our parents. We'll ask for that instead of birthday and Christmas presents. We practice what we'll say when we meet Dr. King. We saw your speech and want you to know we go to school together, and we are best friends. Maybe our picture will be in Life magazine. Before Vicky and I talked to our parents, four little girls die in Birmingham, bombed in a church on a Sunday morning. I watched the news that night with my father. He says, this is exactly what I was talking about. Because of Dr. King, children are getting killed. The next day at school, Vicky is quiet. 
more quiet than she ever is. At recess, we play hopscotch and take turns on the swings. We never talk about the freedom rides again. Vicki and I play flutes in the citywide sixth grade band. And every Thursday after school, we take a bus downtown to rehearse at the junior high school. Our mothers give us money to ride the bus there and back. But we can get home as quick as the bus if we run. We save the bus ride money, and after a month, there is enough to buy ice cream sundaes at the soda shop. The day we are going to do this, Vicki doesn't want to go. I'm going to be in trouble for getting home so late. Just say we missed the bus. Vicky pouts, but considers. Come on, it's not a lie. We have missed the bus. Vicky laughs, and we race each other to the soda shop. The tables all have customers, but no one is at the counter. We jump up on the tall stools and spin so fast we almost fall off. The store owner's back is to us but he sees us in the big mirror. We stop and straighten. He doesn't turn around, so I clear my throat like my father does when he wants a clerk to wait on him. The clerk stands there, looking at us, but not moving, not doing anything. Vicky nudges me and whispers, Let's go. I shake my head and say in a loud, but not yelling voice, Excuse me, mister. We'd like some ice cream, please. He turns around, crosses his arms, and glares hard at us. Vicky jumps off her stool and pulls me off mine. Come on, now. She runs out the door and I chase after her. Why did you do that? He won't wait on me. I look back at the soda shop and see the owner is scrubbing Vicky's stool. This is the North. That isn't supposed to happen here. On the way home, we plan a boycott. Vicki will ask people from her church to help. That's how Dr. King does it. Maybe some people from my church will. Maybe my parents. They like Vicki. But when I get home, I don't tell my parents. I don't know how to tell them this without confessing how we got the money for ice cream. The next day, Vicki says we can't do the boycott. Her parents say we don't understand the kind of trouble it will cause for them and other Negroes in town. Vicky got a whipping for thinking she can go anywhere a white girl can. The week after that, we walk by the soda shop. We stand in front of the door and wait until the owner sees us. We smile, wave, and blow kisses, then spit on the door and run. Run. Are there any colored girls on your relay? My father was a track man in college. He watches it on TV and builds a high jump for us to practice. My brothers disappoint him with their lack of skills. I want to become his track star, and my first meet is coming up. He coaches me on the weekend, and he's worried. Dad says, you're going to be running against Jackson's school girls. Every colored child in town goes to Jackson's school except the few who go to my school. Dad has a theory. Negroes are better in sports than whites because only the strongest survived slavery. <laughs>
But in my class, there are two colored girls and only Vicky runs good, and she's on our relay. The other colored girl is Roxanne, and she runs funny. Nobody wants her on their team, so she gets picked last. In gym class, Vicky wins most races, but not always. The boys have their own races, and the two colored boys in my class hardly ever win. I tell Dad this so he will stop worrying. He says, every rule has its exceptions. Vicky's cousin is on the Jackson School track team. I ask, is she fast? Can you beat her? Sometimes, but when I win, she says she let me. She's just saying that. She says she is the slowest one on their team. I bet she's lying. She's afraid of us. Vicky shrugs. Maybe. The morning of the meet, Daddy goes to the stadium to check out the early races. He comes home and has me run around the yard three times. I pass by him and see his frown. But when I stop, he switches it to a smile. Good job, Punky. No matter what happens today, just do your best. Mom finds me in my room getting ready and says, Daddy saw the colored girls you'd be racing against, and they are fast. He doesn't think you can beat them. I thought you should know. I wish I had another mother, a mother with long legs who likes me. I have my mother's short, fat legs, and she never thinks I can do anything. Now I have to win to prove them both wrong. I stare into the funny, wavy mirror that was my grandmother's, it makes me feel light and dreamy. I see myself running. I run so fast, people stand and cheer. I see Dad yelling for me, and Mom is shocked and silent. I get a trophy, and my mother hugs me and apologizes. I didn't know you were that good. I hear the girls from Jackson before I see them. Their laughter floats and explodes and it forces you to look. They bounce and bob and jump dance and act like they don't see us watching. My team calls to me. Their voices are louder than they need to be, and we laugh at nothing. We do our warm-ups. The ones who can do splits. My flashiest move is touching my toes. I ask Vicky which one is her cousin. Vicky shakes her head. She didn't make the team. They have a coach who makes them practice every night and makes them race every week to see who's the fastest. Their coach must be the tall man walking the track with them. Our teacher lets us choose our own teams, and we practice during recess. Except for my dad, who has me run around our yard on Saturdays. No one coaches us. There are two other teams we will be racing, and they are all white. One of the teams is looking at the rest of us and laughing, and the other is sitting in a circle, holding hands and praying. The announcer calls for the sixth grade girls relay. I'm running the third leg and will pass the baton to Vicky, our last runner. I'm in a lane next to the Jackson girl. She is jumping and stretching and makes quick practice takeoffs. What are you looking at? Nothing. I stretch and practice my takeoff. She laughs and points to her butt. You'll be looking at this. I make the unimpressed look I give my brothers when they tease, and I can't think of a good comeback. She snorts and takes her position and fixes her eyes ahead. 
Her body quivers, waiting for release. Up the track, I see the girls in place and hear a faint, on your mark, get set, go. The starting runners are off, and within seconds, the Jackson girl is ahead. By the time it's my turn, this girl's prediction is right. I chase her behind. The race is between the rest of us. I pull even with the other girls and pass the baton to Vicky. She tries to catch the Jackson girl. She doesn't, but she beats the rest. We get our ribbons, and I find my parents in the stands. Mom puts the ribbon in her purse. Those colored kids are beating everyone. I say, that's because they have a coach, and they practice every day. Dad clears his throat. That's certainly part of it, but like I explained, they were built for this. There's no point arguing with him. Sharon, that is so intense. I'm not even sure what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me want to ask questions. Well, sure. Are you ready? Yes, sure. All right. So, I guess, yeah. Okay. Yes, go ahead. 1963 mm-hmm. is the first time, obviously, you heard the I Have a Dream speech because it was the first time anybody had heard it. Right. What does right. that speech mean to you now today in 2018? Well, it's still the dream. And it's still yet to be realized, of course. I have seen progress, not as much as I had hoped by now. And I think that's the feeling of anyone who was there at that time and and concerned. But um, it still makes me cry every time and still takes me back to that feeling place that I had as a child. So... um, it's just, it's a very special speech, of course. Okay. Shortly after the speech mm-hmm. in August, the four adolescent girls in Birmingham, and you wrote about this in this chapter, mm-hmm. uh, were killed. There was a bombing at that church. Right, right. Um, can you talk about how that affected you back in 1963? And then I'm going to ask you to talk about how these continued slayings affect you now in 2018. Right. Okay. okay. Well, I think at the time, hearing hearing that and seeing it on television, of course, we were seeing on television every night the civil rights marches, the, um, the water that was being sprayed on people. I mean, this was a part of our nightly news, and I sat and watched that all the time. Mm-hmm. Mostly they had been adults, or some young people, but when it was children again, and Vicki and I, of course, were thinking about going ourselves, and um, and it did make me, well, we just, we, we knew that there was no way our parents were going to let us go, but truth is, we didn't want to go anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, it was a fear thing for me, mm-hmm. and and I think I still, I mean, I cannot say that I thought about it every single day. We were, I felt we were safer where we were. And then there were things that happened that showed that we were not as safe as I thought. Mm -hmm. But it still felt somewhat removed, you know. So on the one hand, I was thinking about it. It was right there in front of me all the time. 
but we also played games every night. We, you know, so it wasn't that I was always, I wasn't depressed about it always and, and all of that, but it was just a part of the background of, of my life. And of course, then going forward with, um, you know, the president being shot and killed that same fall. And then it just seemed like one after the other, and you start getting this feeling that anybody that stands up to do something right is going to get themselves killed. Mm-hmm. And it was always, they're going to get themselves killed without the examination of why is that happening? Mm-hmm. And who is it that, and what is it that causes that? And what is it that we can really do about that? So there was, I think, a lot of anxiety on the part of adults around that not really knowing how to address this. And as a child, I'm sure, I don't know how much I was thinking about it. I just, I was feeling a lot about it, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, you mentioned the Freedom Riders mm-hmm. in this chapter. What does protest mean to you now as an adult? How do you like protests or rallies to unfold now? I'm not much of a rally or a protester kind of person. I really think more about the action of my life mm-hmm. and want to be proactive in terms of making making opportunities for people to come together. Um, you know, I've found the arts to be an incredible vehicle for that. And that is something that I've really ended up um, dedicating my life to. I don't know that that was all that intentional, but it was something that, you know, has happened. Um, that word, intentional. Intentional, right. It's, Let's yeah, talk about it, it. It comes, yeah, yeah. The okay. title of this memoir in progress mm-hmm. is Intended. Right, and right. you are a very intentional person. I know this personally. Mm-hmm. What does it mean, Intended? What does this title mean to you? For me, it... And I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a person that really believes that there's only one person for us necessarily, but I think in my life, it feels as if I was intended to be with George. And it felt to me like everything in my life helped me to become the person that could be in this kind of a marriage. And it really started with my parents making the decision to move to the only neighborhood in Quincy that actually had an integrated grade school. And my father did that very intentionally with the wanting his children to have our own experience so that we could combat our understanding of who people were based on our actual experience and combat the racism that he knew that we were going to hear. Mm-hmm. I think he, growing up in a pretty white rural area, did not have that kind of relationship with people until he was in college and in in the armed forces and was able to see that what he had been perhaps taught by society was not true in actuality. And so he wanted his own children for us to be able to have that. And he talked about that very openly. Mm-hmm. And even though he was actually rather conservative, but just that decision certainly informed things in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but even before I understood that, I had this love for this 
this uh, brown doll that yes. and I have no I don't know why I felt that way I just know that I just thought she was the most beautiful baby and now knowing that that's an issue that um, sometimes people even you know parents of black girls have a problem with their their daughters sometimes not believing that the black dolls are beautiful or the black girls not choosing to want to have a black doll. Mm-hmm. And now I actually feel kind of bad that I was keeping this doll from Roxanne. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, well, of course, you know, it's good that she wanted to have have a black doll. But uh, but I wanted her too. Let me ask you a question, not about sure. Roxanne, but about mm-hmm. Vicky. I'm curious, yeah. how long did you guys maintain your friendship? You know, we, we maintained the friendship th- certainly through elementary school, somewhat in junior high. Uh, we still touch base in high school. Mm-hmm. But we really lost contact after that. You find her on Facebook. Do you know where she is? Anything about her? Now? She's still in Quincy. She is, and she um, taught at the at Dewey School. She was a teacher. Wow! And she um, stayed there. Uh, her I did find an obituary of her mother. Okay. And her father had already passed, and I just recently found that. And I did reach out to her, but I haven't haven't heard back. Okay. So. Oh, it'd be great to yeah. get her down here. Get her up here. She's <laughs> south of us, but it'd right, be great to right. meet her. Yeah, I would like to see her again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, maybe maybe that'll happen. Okay. Um, what happened to Roxanne? Roxanne went on to college. She ended up, um, and I, again, you know, I really, the thing is, I lost contact with almost everyone that I used to know there. Mm -hmm. And some of that perhaps was, I don't know that I would say it was intentional, but when I went back home, because I I never lived in Quincy once I left there after high school. And when I did go home, it was only to see my parents. Uh, they came to visit us far more. And when we went home, we didn't go out. And I really left that to them and wanted to make sure that they were as comfortable with our marriage as they could be. And so when we were when they would come to visit us, they would take us out to dinner, we'd go, you know, to festivals and different things like that. But when when we went to Quincy, we pretty much just stayed at their house. About Quincy, do you feel a cosmic pull to just visit every once in a while, take your grandkids, just go get on your feet when you're there? Do you ever just want to go back and connect to the land? It's a beautiful place. I mean, I will say it is a beautiful place. I had wonderful memories of going down to the Mississippi River, riding my bike, but I can't say that I have a longing to okay. be back there. There was also some things that were not so great mm-hmm. that I went through that the book does talk about. Mm-hmm. So it didn't it didn't give me a feeling a longing feeling to be there. Okay, and and because the real friendships that I have now that are so deep and precious to me and family are in other places so to me it's more about the people and um, I think there are some great people there but I I I just have lost that contact with them at this point okay I'm going to ask our listeners a question sure listeners where are you from and do you feel that longing that cosmic tug to go back to where you came from or do you need to step away from it 
let us know what your relationship is with that land where you grew up. Okay, may I continue talking to you? Absolutely. (laughs) Do you want to ask our listeners anything before I ask you more questions? I am not sure that I have questions for them other than I, I would... I would love to hear their stories of their first memories of um, civil rights or their first contact with someone who they would consider from a different race. I mean, I believe that we're all the same race, actually, but but their their first memories of that cultural um, acknowledgement that there's something that they is is different. I mean, there are people that will say. I see no color or it makes no difference to me. And I hope that they do see color Mm -hmm. because color is beautiful. And I would like to just hear their stories of how it has enriched their lives, perhaps. I mean, that would be my hope, that it would be enriching Mm -hmm. to meet people of different cultures and ethnicities. Um, But what that experience was like for them. So, sure, love to hear those stories. Okay, that's a wonderful writing prompt, by the way. Yeah, So, writers, send them to me. Let me read it. Moving on. Sure. 1963, Quincy, Illinois, friendship, ice cream shop, a little bit of mm, rebelliousness. (laughs) I've been told. Why did your dad call you punky? It's so cute. (laughs) You know... I wish I could ask him because <laughs> I don't actually know. My brothers did not have nicknames. Mm-hmm. I was his only daughter, and he showed me uh, an affection that I didn't see him show my brothers. My parents were not huggers. They didn't kiss us. They didn't do any of that kind of stuff. In fact, they um, would make fun of people that did that. They thought that was showing off if they did that too much with their children. Didn't say, I love you. Mm -hmm. But my father, I just knew because the way he smiled at me and that look on his, in his eyes. And sometimes I had a ponytail and he would tug my ponytail or he'd stand next to me and, and kind of do something like that. And then, and he called me punky, which, um, I don't know exactly what that means. Um, but I knew that for him, it, it, was, a, it was a good nickname, it, or it was something that made him smile. And I kind of decided that I was just um, his special child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you had any nicknames since then? I'm not, not really. I have, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not, I don't go by Sherry. In oh, fact, my, that sounds in fact I know, I know. My <laughs> mother, you know, in naming me Sharon made it clear to everyone that my name was Sharon mm-hmm. and not Sherry or anything like that. Um, so, no. You do, you do. I just oh, remembered one. Ganny. <laughs> and Mimey. Mimey, yes, that is true. That is true. People now, my, my grandchildren... Well, some of them call me Ganny, and that was because of just not being able to con- pronounce Granny mm-hmm. at one point. <laughs> but the older ones now think that Ganny is too um, childish for them to say, so they say <laughs> Gran- Grandma, and I'll say, just call me Grandmama. But I actually don't really care. But then, yeah, we have family friends that call me Mimi, mm-hmm. and that's that's fine. Okay. So... <laughs> um. As we turn into a sixth grader, 
Mm-hmm. We are turning into adolescence and right. puberty and all that stuff. Do you remember, and this is sort of personal, I apologize, <laughs> um, but do you remember when you were starting to become attracted to boys? Oh, well, I remember thinking about getting married back when I was in kindergarten. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. Wow. I, I mean, I did. I, and I wondered who, who I was going to have to marry. And <laughs> I was really worried it was this guy, this kid in our class who looked, we looked alike, enough that substitute teachers thought that we were twins. And in my, that child mind, I thought that meant that I had to marry him. And uh-huh. I did not, I did not want to marry him. He was, um, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. He, he, he would eat his boogers, you know, oh, he no. was, yeah, but I was so worried about it. It just, I mean, it, I really <laughs> would sometimes like wake up with just this, oh no, I'm going to have to marry this guy. <laughs> and then Something I don't know what it was. You know, there, we get these little quirk things that that suddenly I thought, wait a minute, my mother doesn't look like my father at all. My dad was really tall and she was short, and so I said something to her like, "Do you have to marry somebody who looks like you?" And she just gave me a weird look, and which that happened often. Mm-hmm. I would ask her things, and she would just look at me and. Sometimes she would answer, and sometimes she'd just say, oh, Sharon, just stop, you know, something like that. But it was one of those kind of answers, and it was like, well, no, of course not. And then I felt free, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I felt, yes, a relief. But I I would say the first boy I was attracted to as far as that I considered him a boyfriend Mm -hmm. was this boy um, in fifth grade. He He had flunked a grade, so he was a little bit bigger than the other kids. He had muscles. And actually, a little bit of of hair on his chin, so <laughs> he, he was, yeah, he was like that. And and his mother was divorced, and my mother didn't want me to have anything to do with him. Oh, so I had to hide the fact that I was absolutely in love with him. Oh my! Yeah, that was Ronnie. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, right, right, yes. Well, we're getting closer mm-hmm. and closer. To meeting Mr. Davis. Yes. And I can't wait. A few years, but yes. Got a few it's, years it's to go, coming yes. Along. It's coming along. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to say, talk about, ask? The only thing I would say is I know that my mother in these stories sounds cold. And I'm actually writing, uh, I, I have written some stories about her in a, in a memoir, and I... Um, I have found through writing about her and really reflecting that she's not as cold as I thought she was. And that's one of the real joys, I think, that we find sometimes in in writing, Mm -hmm. that we discover things about ourselves and other people around us. Mm -hmm. And I realized that she had this, she she had difficulty expressing her feelings, but to her loving me was showing up the fact that she came to that track race even though she had no confidence that I would win (laughs) whatsoever but she was going to be there I mean she was going to be there and that ribbon that she put into her pocketbook I found in a scrapbook after she died Uh. so she wasn't cold she just didn't really know how to show that she loved me and I was not exactly the easiest child to love perhaps too so um 
So yeah, I I um, I just I, I want people to know that, but also to think about that. I I think about that with my own children and grandchildren, that sometimes we don't always know the things that we say that might hurt their hearts, mm-hmm. you know. And I know we can't we can't ever not do that because you know we're all human. But I think just being watchful and just making sure that we have enough. Enough other times that we've <laughs> we've really embraced them to let them know how much we really do love them. I think that's really important. So, I've I've tried to to do that more, but I'm still not a huggy feely person that much and saying I love you all the time to my mm-hmm. kids and this and that. But I do think they know it. Oh yeah, I I know they know it. <laughs> well, Sharon, this is inspirational on many levels as a writer, as a mother, as a wife as a human. And I want to thank you for sharing this second week with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Connie. Yeah, I can't wait to see you next week. Yes. Yay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, the Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coots. Thank you for listening. Now go write.